Welcome to the Hill City Church Podcast. We are a church family located in Springfield, Missouri. You can learn more about us and support our ministries at hillcitysgf.org. You can be seated. So last Sunday was Super Bowl Sunday. I don't know what Super Bowl Sunday is like at your house, but at my house it has kind of evolved over the years, and I just want to give you a little glimpse into what it's like at the Moore house. So my oldest son, his name's Rustin, he's nine years old, he's become a really big football fan. So for, so for Rustin and me, it's all about the game. We're all about the teams, we're all about the players, we want to watch it, we're about the strategy, we don't want any distractions, we want to watch the game. And that brings us to my wife and my daughter, who care nothing about the game. What they want to do is watch the commercials and eat some snacks. Um, so, we're, so that's four of us. And then I have my two youngest, Mac and Malachi. They're just running around like crazy. They don't care about anything. So, so that's the scene at our house last Sunday. And in the midst of this, in the midst of Mac and Kai running around, they come up to me and they have this really brilliant idea. They give me this right here. And this might look like uh, two ordinary magnetiles stuck together, but you would be mistaken. This, this is a remote control. They said, Daddy, this is a special remote control. With this, we will do whatever you ask. I'm like, this is one of your good ideas. This, <laughs> this is going to work. This is good. I'm like, okay, let, let's, let's try this out. So I start with some, you know, some fun things. I'm like, all right, um, let's see some dance moves. Bleep, bloop and they start dancing. I'm like, okay, this is good. Uh, hug each other, bleep, bloop, boom, they're hugging. I'm like, I am just scratching the surface of what is possible right now. I'm like, we, we can do more. I'm like, okay, um, all right, you guys, clean the upstairs, bleep, bloop, boom, they're cleaning the upstairs. I'm like, this is good, all right. Uh, get ready for bed, bleep, bloop, boom, they get ready for bed, and I'm like, this is gonna be awesome. Like, no more complaining, no more arguing, just immediate obedience of whatever I ask. I can get used to this. So the next morning, I wake up and something strange happened. This remote started to malfunction. I did, I'm like, come on guys, uh, get ready for the day. Bleep bloop, nothing. I'm like, what's going on? So I, I pull my son aside, Mac, I'm like, Mac, what happened? What, what's going on? He's like, oh, daddy, daddy. Now it only works if it's something I want to do. Mm. <laughs> of course. I, I should have seen this coming. So, um, but I think my son is actually getting at something that, that God knows about all of us. You see, God doesn't use some kind of cosmic remote control on us to bleep bloop us to do things. That's because he loves us. And he doesn't just want us to obey, he wants us to want to obey. Because if we want to obey, that means we know him, and we love him, and we trust him. And so it's like my son said, it only works if it's something I want to do. It's only meaningful if it's something I want to do. So what does God do? God woos me. It's kind of weird to think about, but, but God loves me, and he draws me to himself. Not in a controlling way, but in a compelling way. There, there's a relationship. And so he patiently helps me 
get to know him. And as that happens, I start to want what he wants more than I want what I want. And so that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see Paul pray for the people of Ephesus that they would enter deeper into this relationship, that they would know God. And it starts with a reason. It starts with a motivation. Why? Why does Paul want this for the people of Ephesus? And so we'll look at it. Ephesians 3.14, Paul says, for this reason. So this phrase, for this reason, it points back to what Paul has been saying, and then it points ahead to what Paul is about to say. So we have to ask, you know, what did Paul just say? So what has Paul been saying? Well, up to this point in the letter, Paul has been talking about who we are in Christ. Who are we in Christ? We are the church built on, in, and through Christ. And so in the first half of chapter 3, Paul teaches that this has been God's plan from the beginning of time, his eternal purpose, what he calls this great mystery. And this great mystery has three parts. It's a who, what, and how. A who, what, and how. So the who, who is the church? The church is for everyone. Paul broke this down in the first half of chapter 3. He says it's not just Jews, it's Gentiles too. Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body. So the church is a welcoming place for everyone, for Jews and Gentiles. And then what is the church? The church is what Paul calls the manifold wisdom of God. It's this beautiful, multifaceted group of people who display God's glory to the world and to the heavens. And then finally, now Paul is going to get to the how. How do we become the church? And that's where we left off last week was in Ephesians 3, 11, and 12, where it says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access and confidence through our faith in him. So how do we become the church? It's through this boldness and access and confidence. The church is formed through connection to the Father. It's about this relationship. We must have a relationship. And Paul reinforces this as he points ahead to what he's about to say. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So we see the Father, immediately a relationship. The Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And this conveys a couple things. First, every single being in heaven and on earth is created by God and for God. In Romans, it says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. So God created us, but not only did he create us, he names us. And this points even deeper to relationship. To name someone means a relationship is there. We name our children. We name those who belong to us. So even my kids understand this. You know, my, my youngest son, Malachi, he got a stuffed monkey for Christmas. And he knows his monkey, his naming rights. So that monkey, his name is Spunky. Spunky little monkey. It's really the whole thing, Spunky little monkey. And so, so he knows this, his, his monkey, his naming rights, and we belong to our Heavenly Father, and he names us. And I, and I just wanna, want that to hit, uh, just to stop for a second and realize this is really good news. Our Father names us. 
Your sin doesn't name you. Your good works don't name you. Your Father in heaven names you. He knows you deeply. He not only knows your name, he gave you your name. So let's review. Paul says, for this reason, what's the reason? Well, God has this amazing plan called the church. Who is the church? The church is for everyone. What is the church? It's this beautiful, multifaceted group of people. How do we become the church? The church is forged by connection with the Father. What Father? The Father who names us. So that's the reason. This is what is filling Paul's mind, what is filling Paul's imagination as he writes this letter to the Ephesians. This beautiful plan that's far better than anything Paul could ever come up with. The church, a people to display God's wisdom and glory to the world. I think of it like this, it's kind of like the sunrise. This is the sunrise outside my house uh, a few weeks ago, and, and it's beautiful. It's, it's just a beautiful sunrise. And as I look at that, I think, you know, that's us. That's the manifold wisdom of God. We are the clouds in the sky. Without the sun, without Christ, we're nothing. But with him, he shines through us. And we get to be a part of something beautiful. We display his glory to the world. And so that's where Paul is as he starts this letter to the Ephesians. He sees it. He gets this vision. He can see what's possible. He can see how it could all come together. He has this clear vision of God and his plan, and he wants the Ephesians to step into it. But he knows that for that to happen, a miracle is going to have to take place. And that brings Paul to his knees. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees. And so he starts to pray for the people of Ephesus. And Paul's prayer is an urgent, emotional plea for one thing, that they may know God. Like Stephen mentioned a few weeks ago, this is not just a head knowledge of God. This is experientially knowing God. The word for know that we're going to read today in this passage is the same word used in Luke 134. In Luke 134, an angel has just told Mary that she will conceive and give birth to a son. And this is what Mary says. She says, how can this be since I do not know a man? It's this kind of deeply intimate, experientially knowing that Paul is about to pray for. And he wants it for the Ephesians because he has experienced it himself. He met the resurrected Jesus. He came to know him and develop this relationship with him, and it changed Paul forever. So he wants it for the Ephesians, and that's the call for us, for us to know God. So I want, I want us to sit with that question. Do you know him? Do you really know him? Think about that. Do you want to know him? You might say, well, I want to do great things for God. I, I, I want to 
I want to live a good life. Well, okay, yeah, but do you want to know him? Near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He says, I never knew you. People want to point to what they've done. I want to point to what I've done. But Jesus says, it's not about what you do. It's about who you know. And you might say, well, what about godly living then? Is, is that not important? Does that not matter anymore? And yes, of course, it matters. And Paul's going to get into that in the next three chapters. But there's an order. Godly living starts with godly knowing. To live for God, we have to know him. And so Paul prays that we do. And, it, and in this prayer, we are going to see three parts to experientially knowing God. Take a knee, meet with Jesus, experience his love. Take a knee, meet with Jesus, experience his love. So let's look at it. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now that is packed. That is a lot to take in. So we're going to look at this. So this phrase, to be strengthened, is really interesting. It's actually a, a bit of a paradox. So to be strengthened, this is kind of what it conveys. It conveys being overpowered, but at the same time being filled with power. It, it's being brought to our knees in complete surrender and there finding strength. And as I've thought about this, it reminds me of a craftsman at work. And so we saw this a few weeks ago. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So I've been reading this book uh, recently. It's called The Boys in the Boat. Really great book. It's about the U.S. rowing team and their quest for the gold medal at the 1936 Olympics. And so kind of right in the middle of this story, the author zooms in on one of the rowers uh, in a summer that he spends working with wood. So Joe Rance, Joe Rance is one of the rowers on the team, and, and he, he doesn't have very much money. So he has to work through the summer so he can pay his way through school. And this particular summer, he spent making roof shakes out of western red cedar. So a roof shake is basically like a shingle, but it's flat on one side and then it's kind of rough. So this is kind of a picture of a roof shake. It's kind of rough. And so the book talks about the relationship between the craftsman and the wood. And this is what it says. It says, Joe was fascinated, intrigued by the, by the idea that he could learn to see what others could not see in the wood. Thrilled, as always, at the notion that something valuable could be found in what others had passed over and left behind. He learned how to listen 
to the wood as it began to talk back to him, the fibers crackling and snapping softly as they pulled away from one another, telling him that they were prepared to split along the plane he intended. He liked the way the wood murmured to him before it parted, almost as if it was alive. And when it finally gave way under his hands, he liked the way it invariably revealed itself in lovely and unpredictable patterns of color. Streaks of orange and burgundy and cream. There was something about the deliberate application of strength, the sudden unfolding of beauty and mystery. And I'm not a craftsman. I don't work with wood, but I read that and I want to. I'm like, man, that's awesome. And why do I feel that way? I, I think I feel that way because it hints at the divine. This is how God works. God created us to be shaped by him. Not in a dominating way, but in this mysterious relational way. It's like Jeremiah 18.6 says, God says, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. It's the deliberate application of strength, the sudden unfolding of beauty and mystery. And so I've been reading through the Old Testament this year, and this theme keeps showing up over and over again. So Jacob, Jacob, he is a liar. He is a deceiver from day one. He is always scheming, trying to figure out a way to get ahead. But God sees more. And so finally, when Jacob is on his way to meet with his brother Esau, he actually ends up meeting with God. He literally wrestles with God, and through this process, he gets to experience, he gets to experientially know God. And it changes him forever. God actually dislocates his hip, and then he gives Jacob a new name. And so Jacob as he's limping away from this experience, this is what he says. He says, I have seen God face to face, and, my, and yet my life has been delivered. He sees God, and it's like he's living for the first time. Job. Job goes through great suffering. He loses everything. He loses his possessions, servants, family, health, and for 37 chapters, he can't make sense of it. His friends come and they try to share wisdom, but they really just make matters worse. Job, he tries to defend himself, but he just digs a bigger hole. And then finally, after all of that, God speaks. For four chapters, God speaks to Job. And as Job listens to God, he realizes that God has been with him through it all. And as God speaks to him, Job gets to experience God, experientially know God in a deeper way than ever before. And Job says, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. What we're seeing is the deliberate application of strength in the lives of these men over time, working on them to unlock beauty and mystery. 
But what if, what if I don't want to surrender? What if, what if I don't want to take a knee? So C.S. Lewis talks about this in his autobiography. So uh, this is C.S. Lewis kind of going back to before he became a Christian. And he's just considering Christianity, taking an honest look at Christianity. And this is what he says. He says, No word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. But Christianity placed at the center a transcendental interferer. There was no region, even in the innermost depth of one's soul, nay, there least of all, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice, no admittance. And that was what I wanted. Some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine only. So I can relate to this. I, I feel this way. There are things that I want to keep to myself. Sure, there are things I don't care about that really aren't that important to me, like uh, carpet colors or hockey scores, um, hairstyles. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't care about that stuff. But there are things that are important to me, things that I do care about. Uh, things like basketball scores, uh, I do care about that. Not getting behind slow people in traffic. Um, and then bigger things like my freedom to judge others, to do what I want with my time and my money, to respond with defensiveness when I'm criticized, to lose my temper when my kids don't listen to me, to complain when things don't go my way. I want to be able to do those things without someone else telling me not to. And this takes us back to the woodworking. Can you imagine working with a stubborn piece of wood? Imagine wood that just doesn't want to cooperate. Instead of splitting along the plane that the craftsman intends, it wants to do its own thing. It would be sad. Cracking, falling apart, never coming together to be this vibrant shake, part of this impressive roof that it was meant to be. But here's the deal. Jacob, Job, Paul, they were all stubborn wood, just like C.S. Lewis. But the beauty of God's love for us is his patience with us. He doesn't have some remote control and bleep bloop us into line. He works with us. He draws us to himself. And later in his autobiography, C.S. Lewis reflects on this. He says, I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility, which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The words compel entrare, compel them to come in, have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them, but properly understood, they plumb the depth of the divine mercy.
The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation. That's what Paul has experienced, and he prays the Ephesians would experience it too. This deliberate application of strength bringing beauty and mystery. And it's a desperate plea because Paul knows it's going to take a miracle. He knows we need help. So it's no accident that Paul uses the phrase, through his spirit. It says, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. When Jesus talks to his disciples about the Holy Spirit, he says, but when the helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. What does Jesus tell them about the Holy Spirit? He says, he is a helper, and he is the truth. And that's the type of strengthening we need. That's what I need, the truth spoken deep into our hearts, telling us that what we really want, what we really need is to bow down and to surrender our lives to God. Our flesh cries out, sin cries out, don't surrender, don't give in. But it's a lie. Satan wants us to wall off our hearts from God. But when we listen to the Spirit, he speaks deep in our inner being, and he gives us the strength to bow down. So you might be thinking, okay, all right, start, I kind of get this, but can you make this practical? Like, what would this look like? What does this look like practically? What does it look like to take a knee? And so if I could kind of define it, I, I would kind of say it like this. To take a knee is to do something you don't want to do because it's what God wants you to do. Do something you don't want to do because it's what God wants you to do. And you might be like, okay, yeah, but what? Like, seriously, what? And so, I don't know, it looks different for everybody, but it might look like these two things. I think there's two main things this looks like, and that would be praying and obeying. So pray, pray. We can pray. Jesus got up early in the morning and he prayed. Who likes to get up early? Crazy people. Nobody likes to get up early in the morning. But we can do it because the Spirit can strengthen us to do it. It might involve going to bed earlier and the Spirit strengthening us to do that. Or maybe it's another time of day. Who knows? But we can do it. We can talk to God about anything and everything. Share your fears, your worries, your celebrations, your plans, your dreams. Confess sin. We can do it. And we can obey. Jesus did this too. He obeyed. Who likes to obey? Nobody. Nobody likes to obey. But we can do it. The Spirit can strengthen us to do it. You can forgive someone who wronged you. You can refuse to be offended. You can... Be patient. This is the way of Jesus. He lived this life. He lived this relational, this take-a-knee kind of life. In the garden, 
as he was facing the cross, Jesus fell on his face and prayed, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What Jesus is saying is, I don't want to do this. But deep down, what I really want, I want what you want more than I want what I want. So what happened in this moment is not God bleep bloop the Father, bleep bloop forcing Jesus to the cross. It's this relational act of obedience. Jesus knows his Father. He loves his Father. He trusts his Father. And so he obeys his Father. And so as we are strengthened with power by his Spirit and our inner being, we start to take a knee. We start to pray. We start to obey. And we are able to say right now in this moment, I want what you want more than I want what I want. And so as we start to bow down, we meet with Jesus. So that's the second part. We meet with Jesus. Paul prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. He prays that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. When we take a knee, when we bow down, Jesus meets us there. That's where he lives. That's where he dwells. Does God want to transform us? Yes. That's part of his goodness and his love for us. But he also just wants to be with us. He wants to meet with us. He wants to care for us. I don't know about you, sometimes I just need a friend, someone to listen. So the other day, my wife texted me. Uh, she just texted me, you know what? I'm thankful that I got to get up early today, go to the gym, and have time to pray. Uh, it ended up being kind of a tough day with the kids, and so she's like, I'm just, I'm just glad I was able to do that. So as I've thought about that. I'm like, did, did anything really change? Did the kids all of a sudden have great attitudes? No. Did, did she have this sudden burst of energy that she could really handle the day better? No. It was just good to be with him. The other day, my daughter came home from school. She's in the school musical, The Wizard of Oz, and she found out what she's going to be, what her part in the musical is going to be. And she found out she's going to be a flying monkey. And so I'm like, awesome. How do you feel about that? She's like, mm, I don't know. She, she wasn't super excited about it. And, and she's like, I think I just need some time to think about it. So later that night, I'm like, so what do you think? What do you think about being a flying monkey? And she's like, you know what? I prayed about it, and I think it's going to be okay. God gave me some peace about it. I'm like, oh, man, that's awesome. Did, did she learn something new about the role of the flying monkey? No. Did anything at all change about this situation? No. It was just good to be with him. The more we spend time with God, the more we get to know his love for us. And we get to be rooted and grounded in his love. The foundation of this building we've been talking about, the foundation of the church is love. And when we are rooted and grounded in love, we are unshakable. Instead of measuring 
the breadth and length and height and depth of the troubles of my day, of my problems, my worries, my fears, my exhaustion, I get to rest in his love, the breadth and length and height and depth. And as we do that, this mysterious thing happens. We actually get to experience his love. And that's the third thing. We take a knee, we meet with Jesus, and experience his love. Paul prays they're able to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That they would know, experientially know, the love of Christ. And I read that, I'm like, what a beautiful, poetic way to pray. What a, what a beautiful way to communicate. He's like, may we get to experientially know this love that we could never intellectually know. And as we do that, we are filled with the fullness of God. And what does that even mean? What, what is it to be filled with the fullness of God? It is to experience this relational life that we were always meant to live. The relationship we are made for. No more and no less. That's the fullness of God. So finally, Paul sums up his prayer just how he started. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So what he's saying is our Father who names us can do far more abundantly than anything we could ask or imagine. How? Through his Spirit who loves to work in us. That deliberate application of strength to bring us to our knees. And as we bow before him, it unlocks this beauty and mystery of meeting with Jesus and experiencing his love. And all of this leads to glory. It's that sunrise. All of it leads to that glory as Christ shines through his church throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So this process, it's kind of this process of surrender leading to glory is what we've seen. And this just, it points us to Jesus. That was the life of Jesus, surrender leading to glory. And in Paul's letter to the Philippians, he just lays this out. He paints this picture of Jesus' life of surrender that leads to glory. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He surrendered. He took a knee by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's all these words of surrender. It's emptied, servant, humbled, obedient, death, cross. He lived this life of surrender for us. And what was the result of that? Oh, man, therefore, for this reason, God has 
highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For all those words of surrender, we see words of glory, highly exalted, name above every name, every knee should bow, every tongue confess to the glory of God. Jesus took a knee. He surrendered. And in doing so, he blazed a path to glory. And that's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, that they may know Jesus, that they may know him, and that we may know him. May we get a clear picture of our Father who names us and the church he has called us to be. May the Spirit bring us to our knees, point us to Jesus, and may we experientially know his love for us. Try it this week. I would encourage you, pray this prayer. Pray it for yourself. Pray it for your friends. Pray it for your spouse. Pray it for your kids. Because we do this together. As Danny Mack is teaching us in Romans, it's vertical and it's horizontal. It's both. Paul prays. He goes vertical to his father. And who's he praying for? He's praying for his friends in the horizontal. And what's he praying for his friends? That they would go vertical, that they would know their father. It's both. And that's the plan. That's the mystery. So I knelt down by my son's uh, bed the other night. And this is what I prayed for him. I prayed that the spirit would strengthen him deep in his inner being. That Christ would dwell in his heart. And that he would know the love of Christ and be filled with the fullness of God. And I got up, and when I finished praying, my son, he's like, Daddy, that prayer was legit. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, buddy. It is. It is. Let's pray.